So again, good evening and welcome. My name is Amy Huffnagel and I'm the Director of Public Programs at the Stowe Center. Um, we are going to be having a dialogue with three amazing speakers tonight and being in conversation with you all as well. Uh, the chat feature is activated today, so feel free to respectfully use it, not distract us, but to pose questions. Um, that's how we'll take questions, although we are quite a small group, so that's good. Um, we could go live with that. Um, we also have a survey. I'm going to put the link in the chat as the program unfall, uh, unfurls, but it's really important for us to hear what our audiences and our speakers think about the program. So please take a few minutes with that survey at the end. It um, is really important because our programming is funded tonight from a grant from the George A. and Grace L. Long Foundation, which is a project of Bank of America NA co-trustee program. And they underwrite all of our salons at the Stowe Center. They've been a lifelong, longtime um, supporter of these series, and they're particularly interested in how we share voices to discuss pressing social issues of the day that matter both to Harriet Beecher Stowe during her time and to all of us um, in our own lives today. So these programs are going in deep this season on how history is being taught and specifically how race history is being taught in the United States from a range of different prisms as we change the lens every session. We're also looking at issues of intellectual freedom and issues of book banning because they're all intertwined in a number of ways. So um, mark your calendars for November 9th when we'll have the fourth and final series in this um, program. So um, we'll have full bios for our participants on our multimedia gallery webpage when we launch this the, the um, podcast next week. But for the sake of tonight, I do always feel to do respectful honor to the speakers who are with us. Um, we're going to start uh, by talking about um, the fact that we're bringing this issue forward because there are 24 states throughout the country in the United States right now who have legislations in action to limit the way history can be taught. And dozens of other states, municipalities, and local school districts, including several in the state of Connecticut, have been challenged um, for the inclusion of books in both educational curriculum and on library shelves. To my mind, um, intellectual freedom is a human right, and we'll go into this in more detail. So to discuss these issues um, tonight, we have three speakers. Um, Antoinette Brim Bell is with us as an author with three full-length poetry collections. Um, want to encourage you, and we'll have links um, to things in our, our um, online version to read These Women You, give, you Gave Me, Icarus in Love, and Palms of a Sunflower. Um, she is a Kaveh Kanem Foundation Fellow and an alumni of Voices of Our Nation Arts Foundation. She teaches at um, English at Capital Community College here in Hartford and also serves as a teaching and learning consultant um, and is chair of the Center of Teaching, all of which are really important works on developing new curriculum and on history telling too. So thank you so much, Antoinette, for your work. Uh, we're also going to hear from Vanetta Lightfoot. Uh, Vanetta is a higher educational professional who specializes in multicultural affairs, developing content and event program 
programming and planning with the goal of creating inclusive spaces on college campuses through diverse cultural programming. She knows you can't be what you can't see, and so creating events and activities that center on BIPOC and other marginalized communities is at the core of the work that she does at Springfield Technical Community College in Massachusetts. In 2020, she was awarded one of the 100 Women of Color, and that's by the June Archer and 1128 Entertainment Organization. And this award featured many women who have affected the lives of people in the state of Connecticut and Western Massachusetts. Uh, she was also recently named one of Business 40 Under 40. And so we're so thrilled to have you um, working with us and the work that you do as a certified racial equity trainer as well. And certainly, last but not least, um, Christine Emerin, who is the director of the Youth Free Expression Program at the New York-based nonprofit, the National Coalition Against Censorship, or the NCAC.org. Really important organization to check out when you're um, not on the program. She writes on contemporary issues about young people, social media, and social movements in the United States and in Western um, and Eastern Europe. And she's a Fulbright Fellow and author of The New Generation of Political Activism in Ukraine, 2000 to 2014. Pretty timely um, and intense book. The March for Our Lives movement in the US, Generational Change and Personalization of Protest. And she's been featured in a number of other book series. She's an international researcher as well as an academic, and she has taught political theory and sociology at Manhattan College, um, St. John's University, and in Paris, France. She received her PhD in sociology at the New School for Social Research. And it's amazing that your work focuses on global youth, social movement, and social media networks and disinformation. So we have this topic coming at us from so many different directions. And let's start. I'm going to pin uh, Vanetta in to lead our conversation. Good evening, everyone. <clears throat> um, before I begin, I just um, want to thank uh, Amy and Anita and the Stowe Center for having me here tonight. Um, and thank you for taking a chance on my project even before it was completed and allowing me to share it on this platform. I'm, I'm truly grateful for that. Um, I also want to thank uh, my team at STTC because they are the real rock stars of this project and I couldn't do it without them. So um, Erica Enough, Chelsea Contrada, Emily Brown, Marco Packard, Rebecca Schmidt, and Daniel Paquette. Thank you all so much. And lastly, I just wanna say I am honored to be here with two incredibly talented and dynamic women, Antoinette and Christine, who were also very supportive of this project, um, even in the early stages. So thank you both. Um, so now let's get into the band book project at STCC and the periodic table of band books. So let's see, I'm gonna share my screen. So, I feel like I'm going to go ahead and talk about it, but I wanted you to actually see 
what the periodic table of banned books looks like at STCC. Um, for, for those who are here with us, um, this is exactly what it looks like as a permanent um, installation um, in our library. And each of the tiles were hand-created hand -created by our team um, at STCC. So just to give you an idea, um, this is what um, the project looks like. So the periodic table of banned books is exactly how it sounds. Um, we've created 114 tiles that represent various books that have been banned or challenged in the past 20 years to present day. Um, it is an interactive exhibit, which features QR codes on each tile that link to a webpage specifically for that book. And the webpage itself gives a description of the book about why it was banned or challenged. And it also lists some of the specific reasons it was banned or challenged, like for violence or sexual content or language. Most of the books featured on the periodic table are written by um, Black and Indigenous and other people of color or um, folks from LGBTQIA plus um, community which tend to be disproportionately challenged. So the project began with uh, a simple conversation with a friend of mine and a colleague, um, Chelsea Contrada. We were chatting about what ideas um, we would collaborate on for the year. And we came across a picture of um, a periodic table of African-American figures and heroes and thought this would be a fun concept. And we didn't think much of it at the time, but the idea was brewing, you know. So a couple weeks later, I went to the South by Southwest Education Conference in Austin, Texas. And a lot of the conversation was about banned books, censorship, and fighting for freedom to read. So I was in a session and I was taking some notes. And as I was doing so, I got a text from Chelsea and it was a picture of the periodic table with the caption that said, next year. And I said, oh my God, this is it. I'm like, let's, let's do a periodic table of banned books. And so at that point, the idea was officially born. Uh, when I got back to STCC, I went down to Erica, who is our Dean of Library Services. And I remember this very clearly because I crashed a meeting she was having with her staff. And I said, we have to do this. It would be such a cool way to talk about book banning and censorship, um, especially since you all usually highlight it in the library every year for Banned Book Week. And Erica loved the idea and said, let's make it a permanent exhibit. And so um, we, we chose to do it now because while we know book banning is not a new topic, it's becoming more and more widespread and problematic. Um, in 2021, I read that the American Library Association reported uh, 729 attempts to censor library resources, targeting um, 1,597 books, which represented the highest number of attempted book bans since the ALA began compiling this list more than 20 years ago. So 
we felt it was time to bring this to our campus and have a conversation about it and do it in a very engaging way. So through the creation of the periodic table, we thought there's a way to make a larger impact on our campus. And that's when we came up with the banned books project at STCC. And people who know me, they know I don't like to do one-off things. I like to look um, for programming and create programming that has continuity in, in the hopes of creating a legacy um, for, for our campus. So this project is composed of programming and activities that center on um, topics of censorship and intellectual freedom and building community through shared storytelling and experiences. And we also wanted to assist our campus with the concept of culturally responsive teaching and learning. And our project might help build bridge the gap uh, when it comes to understanding the importance of using racially diverse content to connect and retain students whose cultures, experiences, and history are outside of the dominant culture. The project uh, also gave us a chance to work with surrounding community partners like the Stowe Center and others, as well as uh, local libraries who are all very passionate about this issue. I do feel it is uh, a cultural battleground though, because there's uh, a fear that if uh, BIPOC were to learn more about who they are and their history, that they may be dangerous and challenge what they what they've been taught in schools or how they've been socialized, which poses a threat to those in power and those who have created the dominant narrative. Whereas if BIPOC remain in the dark about their history and their culture, then systems of oppression and institutional racism can continue unchecked and unchallenged. And I always think, what did Dr. Seuss say? The more that you read, the more things you will know, the more that you learn, the more places you'll go. And so if you know more, you'll show up to the school board meeting or to that PTO meeting right alongside those folks who are challengers and defend the right for folks to read books outside of their own lived experiences because you yourself will understand the value in it. And in my opinion, um, we all lose out by not knowing the truth about American history and knowing and not knowing who we are and books help us do both. And that's why we need them. And so to close out my remarks and I wanna go into showing you a little bit more about the, what the, um, the project looks like, but I, I wanna um, close by giving you another Dr. Seuss quote that I carry with me. You might be able to see it in the background. Um, and I carry it throughout my work and in my life in general. And that is, um, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing's going to get better. It's not. And that quote is from the Lorax who you might know um, who stood for the trees. And I often feel that that way in my work um, at the college that 
it's my responsibility to be sure our students understand what's happening in the world around them and empower them to stand up for what is right and their freedom to learn. So if that means that we have to purchase all the books that have ever been banned and have them in our library readily accessible for students, then I will make that my personal mission because if it helps one student see themselves or their personal experience represented, then it is worth it. And intellectual freedom is defined as the right of every individual to both seek and receive information from all points of view without restriction. And I always feel like you never know what amazing things students will do when they are armed with knowledge and a sense of self. And that's my goal through this project um, and other projects is to help them figure it out. So thank you. <laughs> Great, so maybe we'll come back, Vanetta, or are you gonna show us some pictures? Yeah, let me, I just wanna show you a few things. Um, okay, I won't go. take up too much more time. No, no, so you're fine, hear from my, go ahead. I wanna hear from my colleagues. So again, this is what the periodic table looks like. Um, and this was the inspiration for it, it was our, um, our the periodic table of black history that we um, saw just, randomly in a Google search, um, but it, it kind of sparked that idea that we had. Um, but we didn't want to limit it to just Black History Month. And the great thing about our project is that all of our tiles can be um, changed out. So um, again, the, the, the statistic I gave you about the ALA um, and uh, the 729 attempts to censor um, a number of books is, is the main reason why, why we did this and felt like it was an important um, time to bring this project forward. And these are the actual um, tiles. So for those who are listening in the, um, the tiles are about eight and a half by 11. Uh, we've created a special key um, for each tile, which lists using shapes why those um, books have been challenged. So the shapes range um, from like pentagon to triangle to circle to diamond, but um, they represent violence, religion, sexual content, um, LGBTQIA um, plus. Um, so they, each one is listed and all the books are um, listed by a publication date or a publication year rather. Um, and they have a um, picture of the first edition cover on the tile and then the QR code next to it, like I said, links to a personal webpage um, for that book, which shows you why the book was banned. Um, and then our, um, our website was created because we wanted it to be a interactive and engaging and immersive um, experience. So if you come to our library, you'll be able to use your phone with a QR code, it brings you right to the Stick Reads Band Books homepage or to that specific book page um, that tells you a little bit more about um, the book that you're, you're looking at. And we're very excited. It, I have to say it came out exactly how I envisioned it, um, probably better. Um, and again, um, 
I'm just so appreciative to Stowe Center for allowing me to share this with you all tonight. And thank you so much for letting me be here. Oh, that was so amazing and inspiring. I love you when people share the process of how an idea comes from, uh, comes to be. So thank you so much. We'll come back to more discussion on that. Um, but we're gonna move now to our second speaker, Antoinette from Bell. Well, thank you. Again, I wanna say thank you for having me here. And I'm so excited to be here with Vanetta and with Christine and, and big shout out to Vanetta on that project. That is absolutely amazing. And uh, I was thinking to myself as I was looking at the tiles, this is the quintessential reading list, right? This is what everybody should be reading. Um, and, uh, and it's wonderful that you're making it so accessible with the QR codes. Um, so, um, not only do I teach composition, but I also teach literature, um, and I wanted to, to start out by saying that literature, as well as the other arts, um, undergird the historical record in the sense that they take the facts and the numbers and put a human face on them. We start to understand what it means when um, someone is enslaved, what their everyday life might be like, or if someone is hiding out, um, in the case of Anne Frank and her family, we have the diary to kind of undergird those um, numbers that we hear. We hear about 6 million Jews, but when we look at the one through her own language and her own writing, then we have a better understanding of, of what actually happened um, historically. Now, when I go to teach literature, I often will lay a foundation for the students um, before we actually approach the literature because literature is not written in a vacuum. You know, there's, um, a whole world um, in which this piece of literature is couched. And sometimes they need to know the history that um, is, is, is holding up this piece of literature. Um, for example, in one of my classes right now, I'm teaching um, Ocean Bongs on Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, which is um, exciting for my students because it has a Hartford connection but also because in that particular class, there are a lot of immigrants and they see themselves in the texts. And so they're talking about their immigrant experience because they have an avenue um, in which to channel this discussion. And then I have other students of color who are saying, you know, I have similar um, experiences and they're finding confluence. Um, my problem with the banning of books is it takes away that opportunity for students to find confluences with other cultures and to build empathy. It leaves a hole, so to speak, in um, the not only the literary canon, but the historical record. And that's extremely problematic. And of course, when students see themselves 
imaged in the literature, they feel like they're being validated. Um, when we pull these books out of circulation and out of curriculum, ultimately what we're doing is erasing individuals and communicating to the, the individual who is being erased that they don't matter and that they can't be seen. And additionally, what we're doing on the other hand is showing the dominant culture that it's okay to erase these individuals, that they don't particularly matter and that their stories are not valid. So um, another thing I wanted to discuss was um, the Hartford Heritage Project that we have at Capital Community College. When I moved to um, Connecticut a little over 11 years ago, it was the beginning of this project by which we were going to make um, Hartford a classroom. And so there's so many amazing opportunities right there, um, right around our college. Um, not only was there the Hartford stage, um, you know, the old state house, there were all kinds of opportunities. And as we went out into um, Hartford, not only were we educated, but the students themselves were educated about their own home and the place it held in history. And that was extremely exciting for them because they had a sense of pride and a sense of inclusion. Additionally, they found that these, you know, you, you go and you see the Wadsworth and it can be intimidating, it's big, you know, building. And a lot of times um, students of color feel like that place is not for them. But with us taking them in and showing them around and having programming there, they realized that those spaces were for them as well. And so I would have students say, okay, I took my family with me to do my assignment, or I wanted to show them something um, that we have seen. Um, and then that program also opened up the opportunity for us to have the Black Heritage Project, which looks and, uh, and centers um, African-American and indigenous people, because we find that their fates were also um, um, bound together uh, in Hartford um, during the time that we were studying. And so it gave us an opportunity and it's giving us an opportunity for us to say, yes, other people contributed. So we hear about the founders, but we don't necessarily hear about the indigenous or the enslaved. All of this makes for a complete perspective, a complete view of what actually happened um, in Hartford at that particular time. My problem with some of the legislation that is being proposed and is, you know, um, actually going into effect is that in essence, what it does is it rips out certain individuals and certain groups um, from the historical record. And that is extremely problematic because then the history that you're teaching is more fallacy than it actually is fact. Um, and subsequently, if we're not looking at how our systems and institutions are affecting 
everyone in the community, we don't know how to go forward. And we have to also realize that we're all in this together um, in the sense that we're in the same ship. And if there's a hole, you know, in the front of the ship, um, the people in the back of the ship are eventually going to be affected by it. Um, so if we want to know how to increase um, um, employment and, and standards of living and um, healthcare, um, we have to look at all of these and see, okay, who has an opportunity? Who doesn't have an opportunity? How do we make it so that everyone has an opportunity so that eventually we'll have a better tax base, we'll have a, a more educated um, workforce, um, and we'll have less crime and less poverty. And to me, these things seem very, very basic. Um, unfortunately, not everyone sees them in, uh, sees it in this way. So I think there are a lot of different ways to be activist. I think that what Vanetta just showed us is a very activist way to make sure that the record is, um, remains somehow intact, right? And I think for educators, our syllabi and our reading lists must be diverse. Um, I think that we must allow the students to see themselves evidenced um, in their classrooms um, and, and, and see themselves represented so that they know that not only do they belong there, but they belong in the larger power structure and um, that they too have a place in, um, in the country in which they reside. I'm so moved by those words. So important. Thank you so much, Antoinette, and the, for the work that you do all the time to, um, to to teach us more about Hartford and the city that we live in and the students too. So we're going to come back all together, but let's go on to Christine. Christine, thanks so much for uh, being up next. Like like the others have said before me, uh, I have to repeat um, a warm, warm thank you to Amy, Anita, and the Stowe Center for inviting me tonight to speak. Also, I'm equally excited to be on this panel with Vanetta and Antonella. So again, I've been really touched to hear um, you know, their, their stories and the work that they're doing. So I encourage them you know, to continue the fight. Um, so I, I'm going to start um, my presentation with a little bit of and my work at NCAC. And then I'll talk a little bit about the research that I've been doing related to book bans and its visualization on a database. Um, okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna start a little bit with the history. So as, um, as Amy said, you know, I'm the director of the Youth Free Expression Program at the National Coalition Against Censorship. It's also known as NCAC as an acronym. This organization started about 50 years ago. Um, it is a nonpartisan alliance and it includes membership of over 50 national nonprofits. And this includes um, you know, literary, literary groups, religious groups, educational groups, labor, as well as civil liberty groups. Um, in terms of its work in general, it engages in direct advocacy as well as education to support the First Amendment principles. And this is the work that they've been doing, as I said, over 50 years. Um, myself, I lead the NCAC's Kids Right to Read program um, that offers support 
education, as well as direct advocacy to people facing book bans or challenges in their schools or school libraries, and also helped to engage these local activists to promote the freedom to read as well as to learn. Um, this program also advocates for the free expression rights of K-12 students, as well as the staff. Um, and this work um, primarily focuses on book censorship incidents, and it is also responsive and tailored um, to each situation. Um, we contact teachers, booksellers, librarians, as well as local um, reporters and free speech advocates involved in the challenge. Um, in terms of our viewpoint, um, we don't advocate for or against any particular book. We are viewpoint neutral, but we've defended the speech rights um, of individuals across the political spectrum. We provide guidance for teachers as well as librarians and administrators. But in general, our position is that students are best served by books um, that address controversial issues. So generally we, we favor more speech. So basically more books of all kinds should be available, but really it's not up to us. It's up to the educational professionals and other stakeholders to determine you know, whether particular books belong in schools using objective criteria that's usually related to legitimate ped pedagogical factors. Um, in terms of litigation, our organization, we don't litigate, but we do advise um, school staff to reach out to local unions or ACLU, sometimes it's a state library association or even a national council of teachers of English affiliate um, to help them, you know, guide them through um, what's going on um, in their communities and to provide, you know, if need be, um, you know, advice on what to do. Um, in terms of the, um, the work that I do, um, when I started NCEC, um, it's been almost two years, a year and a half. Um, my first question was, um, this was before, you know, this kind of firestorm that we find ourselves into, you know, how rampant, you know, was the censorship of student free, free expression and where is it localized? So this was really the research question that got me thinking in terms of, you know, you, you know, what you know what is it and where where does it happen so at the time um our organization you know they they've kept records in terms of the instance the, the cases that they were tracking um on a spreadsheet that you know kind of spanned you know the years years of time um and this actually predated um the pen reports and its index um at the time you know as um Vanetta mentioned it was ALA that was the primary organization that reported you know annual statistics on um libraries primarily library books and the total number of book bans on an annual basis. But as a researcher, I began to work to create a database to visualize this data on a Google map covering um, the past uh, you know, four years. Um, so this basically involved um, creating metrics in terms of what it was out of this data that we were collecting um, that would be visually interesting and also um, allow um, some to shed light in terms of the phenomenon that we we're seeing um, you know, take place. Um, so basically, it involved identifying um, student censorship cases that documented um, not only book challenges in schools and libraries, but as well um, as um, censorship of student art, journalism, and also different types of student expression in schools. And in addition, um, it was also to document the, the reasons um, for these challenges, you know, what kind of challenges or what type of expression was being challenged. You know, when did it happen? You know, where did it happen? Um, in what kind of institution um, in terms of was it a school? Was it a library? Um, and also challenger, you know, who was the, who was the initiator of the challenge as well as the lo location? Um, but when we think about um, this youth database, 
Um, the idea really was, um, you know, it does kind of apply a form of citizen science in terms of its application. It has been a way to connect citizens as well as journalists and policymakers um, with the potential to, to impact the local as well as national decision making and empower citizens to get involved with not just an understanding of the changes taking a place around them um, involving book bans, but it also it allowed citizens to contribute new cases um, that you know vetted you know by us you know to this database, and it also allowed their engagement to monitor the situation on the ground. So this involvement of citizens also provides a sense of shared responsibility for these issues to become you know active you know during this change process, as we said, to you know participate in school board meetings you know and so forth. And also to contribute to the well-being of their school communities, you know, to um, you know fight against these particular bans. And um, in terms of my research, I did take a look at the database in terms of you know what was going on, you know, the last five years, and to see you know if there were any relevant cases that were happening in Connecticut. Um, I'm happy to report in terms of the schools, there has not been any you know challenges to um, you know curriculum um, or school libraries. However, you know that said, when I was getting ready to you know kind of finalize my notes. Um, there was actually, I, I looked at ALA's news, newsletter that came out this month or this week, and there was actually a case in the public library in Fairfield. Um, and in this, this was a recent case um, in which um, a parent um, made a request to remove um, a graphic novel that was named um, A Teen's Guide to Sex, Relationship and Being Human. Um, so in this, um, so the library, um, followed its procedures in the sense it had a public hearing, you know, to hear out all the, you know, kind of the, the community concerns, as well as, you know, undergo a committee um, to review this particular book. And in, in, the, in the end, um, the members felt it wasn't really their place to, um, to remove the book, and they didn't feel that they should. Um, so the request was denied, you know, to, you know, kind of the chagrin of the, the parent. Um, but this actually highlights, you know, that, you know, this, um, you know, this um, incident, these incidences are not, you know, they're nationwide, you know, they can happen in your communities, they can happen, you know, essentially everywhere, you know, and, um, you know, this was something I, you know, I found was, was important, you know, to kind of highlight today, you know, in terms of the talk. And also, I, I wanted to, um, to show a little bit about the, um, you know, I did took, I did take a look at the last two years. To kind of see if there are any differences in terms of like um, you know the reasons for challenges, the challengers, the types of challenges, to see if there's any variation between last year's school year um, and this year's school year. Although we're sort of halfway through, we're just starting. Um, there's actually been you know some shifts um, you know, that I'd like to you know kind of show you. Um, so let me show my um, share my screen just for a little bit, and I, I'll show you a little bit about some of the analysis I've made um, on the database. Um, but also I'll I'll give you some other you know kind of context in terms of the database as um, we go through the slides. Hold on. How's that? Okay. Okay, so to begin, um, my first question was to look at the challengers, you know, comparing last year. Last year basically means 2021, January through um, December 2021 to this year, 
which is January through early October to kind of, you know, understanding if there has been any changes or fluctuation in terms of the types of challengers. In the past, um, as you can see, primarily the, um, the actor that's most involved in initiating these challenges tend to be parents. So, and 2021 shows that, you know, 98% of the cases that we got, um, that we recorded, um, came from parents. And um, if we compare it to this year, so half of this, you know, involves, you know, second half of, you know, last year's school year, as well as the, the beginning of this year's school year, we see that number starting to de decrease. And that if you sort of add the other actors um, together, it almost becomes like a 50-50 split in terms of like who is now getting involved in challenging these books. And if you look at the, the colors that we have here, we see like the community, you know, when, when we talk about community members, these are not, um, you know, members that have students um, at the school um, that are, you know, initiating these, these challenges. Um, we have government officials. Um, so as we, we've seen, um, you know, these legislations um, that are appearing, um, and this is the sort of the result um, of, you know, the challenges where governors or, you know, state reps are, you know, dictating um, how particular things should be taught or not be taught, um, impacting, um, you know, children's right to read in schools. Um, and so as you can see here, there's a shift, you know, when these laws are, have taken effect. And um, we see sort of the trends in terms of it starting to lean towards other actors, you know, getting involved to challenge these types of books. Um, in terms of types of challenges, um, you know, what kind of challenges are there? So here um, we've been looking at um, the types of challenges that we've received, you know, from 2021 and 2022. As, as you can see, um, there has been a shift. Um, you know, before that we had a little bit of, you know, a little bit of everything. Um, however, you know, 50% has always been about books, but this year in particular, as we've seen, it's completely taken over that most of the types of challenges that we are facing are, you know, as you can see over 90% all about books. Um, so in terms of students um, challenges to their free expressions in schools, it tends to be right now related, you know, not so much to these other types of categories where we were getting challenges. Um, and now it's, it's purely centered on books. Um, in terms of reasons for challenges, um, it's very similar to, to what um, Vanetta uh, mentioned when she was talking through, um, you know, her periodic table in terms of like classifying them. Um, and um, for 2022, um, you know, 2021, the number one um, reason has, has been um, sex. And um, the second um, reason for, um, if you look at this year, um, it's LGBTQ. Um, followed by social and political views. Um, so then also you can see profanity um, is, is equal to the social political views. Uh, so that's kind of a tie for, I guess, a third um, you know, common reason for challenges that we've seen. So as you can see, um, you know, there's, there's some variation, but um, you know, sometimes we, there is an intersectionality in terms of books that have all three. Um, so therefore, it could be an LGBTQ book that, you know, touches on themes of sex or has profanity in it, or it could be a social political view because it could, you know, involve, you know, some type of, you know, behavior or a, a certain type of, of action in terms of where, where they're situated in the communities that um, others might find objectable. Um, so that's um, something that, you know, we, we've been tracking in terms of reasons for challenges. Um, and I'm going to stop sharing my screen and I will 
hold on a sec. Just taking a little bit of time to disconnect. <laughs> Okay, but sorry about that. <laughs> okay, so in terms of like the the categories that I, that I was talking about in the last slide, um, in terms of you know how we were able to classify the sensor reasons. Um, so sometimes when we look at um, categories such as intolerance, sometimes that could involve speech being censored because it some people find it sexist or racist or anti-Semitic or, you know, that, that um, you know, the, of that sort. Um, you know, sometimes um, we select religion if, it, if people are being censored because they think it's not, you know, it's anti-Christian or it's too secular. Um, and in terms of like the political social views, it could be censored because it's about pro-Black life matters or pro-Blue life matters, you know, or something of that sort. You know, in terms of LGBTQ um, themes that I said before, Sometimes it's, you know, it's the theme of LGBTQ, but, um, you know, it's masked as, you know, a sex in terms of the reason for it being censored. Um, so therefore, there is um, overlap in terms of some of these categories, but also to, to keep in mind in terms of our, our database, it's not as comprehensive as ALA um, in terms of the number of cases that we've been, um, you know, personally um, have had direct um, intervention you know, with or have you know monitored on our um, on our on our I guess our, our media monitoring system. So, for example, in 2020, um, what is it? 2021, we've probably tracked over 75 you know cases you know versus you know the 300 or 700 plus cases that you know Vanetta mentioned from ALA. And then also for this year to date, we've had over 103 that we've recorded on our database. Um, so again, um, you know, it, it's, to, it's, it's important to keep in mind that it's not, you know, as, um, you know, it doesn't include as many cases as, you know, the Penn Index and the other, but we do find correlation in terms of the, the reporting that they, they're finding that, um, you know, co that corresponds very well with the research that Penn America has done, and, as well as ALA, to say that, you know, these, these reasons for um, you know, books being censored seem to follow you know, what they found in their reports as well. Um, but just keep in mind the numbers are um, not, uh, it's not over 2000 as you know, the Penn you know, America Index has found. So I think it's great to, to be able to compare and also to read um, you know, through um, you know, other research as well. Um, so I just have that as, as kind of a, a, a caveat. Um, but in terms of how, what librarians are doing, um, they, they are um, working on a new campaign called Unite Against Book Bans. Um, this is ALA. So that's actually a good organization to, um, to connect to if you'd like to support their campaign. They're um, you know, working towards a million um, signatures of people to sign on to it. So I'd encourage you to take a look at that. They also have a toolkit that provides sample letters, you know, talking points, and how to get in touch with elected officials which would also help you to kind of mobilize and defend these particular books in your community. Um, and also, um, you know, we encourage you to, you know, in, involve yourself in terms of going to local meetings, you know, even run for school board meetings. That could be something you consider doing. Um, even to start a banned book club um, is, you know, something to, to think about, um, as well as, you know, contacting media, publishing articles, you know, writing, you know, school administrators, um, and number one is just to intend and to speak up, you know, at these school board meetings as, you know, these types of challenges appear in your communities um, and offer support, you know, to students 
that are in need of these particular resources. Um, in terms of int intellectual freedom, I'm going to close with you know a few words. Um, but as we think about you know libraries, you know libraries do offer students opportunities to encounter books, and also different types of materials that may, they may not have you know an opportunity to see, or even to make that choice about what to read um, if they're not in that particular space. So when you denied these types of young people this freedom to explore. Um, and generally, a lot of times we find that, that it's the basis on a particular sentence or a passage that, that is basically taken out of context. It limits not only what they learn, but also who they can be as a human being. Um, so for us, we, you know, we consider that students are, um, you know, are um, aided by books. You know, the books do help students that, you know, they connect to characters whose stories reflect their own lives. Um, they also widen the view of a changing world um, to embrace diversity and multiculturalism. So, you know, it provides, you know, empathy for even those that are not of these particular groups, but to be able to, under, you know, have a better understanding of their lived experiences and to be able to, um, you know, extend, you know, some, you know, um, understanding um, and, you know, kind of a, a human connection. Um, and so for us, you know, we also want to, um, you know, to, to close by, by mentioning, you know, about our First Amendment. Um, if we think about it, you know, it does guarantee that, you know, no individual or groups of individuals or community members can di dictate, you know, what public school students are allowed to read, you know, based on their personal beliefs or political viewpoint. So for us, it's freedom of the expression um, that ensures that we can meet challenges of a changing world and a democracy that you know is challenged at, you know during these times. So this freedom for you know for for these um, students is critical um, because they will be you know America's future leaders in the years to come. So we have to organize and kind of find um, you know the way to you know to fight and to support them to defend their rights to read and to learn. I think I'll finish there. Such important research and words. Thank you so much for that, Christina. I'm going to add your co-speakers back. I and I'm going to welcome you to speak with each other for a few minutes. And um, to the audience, now is a great time to share some questions in the chat if you're inclined. So. Like I said, I, these two women are amazing, dynamic. Um, again, really privileged to be here um, and hear them both speak. Um, I have two things I wanted to say. Um, Antoinette, when you talked about the um, taking the books out of the library or out of the classroom, what that does to um, people who are outside of um, the dominant culture or when it's when you're in a class where you you don't connect with the the curriculum or you don't connect with the work it's very difficult to continue in the class it's very difficult to see yourself and I'm just so glad that you brought up that point um, because at my institution, I'm always um, having this conversation with faculty about um, why they should bring this information into the classroom. So the same way they're researching uh, topics that they wanna bring up in their class, 
did you see if a person of color wrote something? Did you see if there's someone who could be highlighted? Because even that small gesture, that small um, instance where um, folks hear something that they connect with or they can understand an experience that, that may be their lived experience, like instantly you've made that connection and, you, and you're retaining that student um, so I thought that was like a really uh, great point because I I think it's um, it it makes it um, a lot easier for our students to 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 stay in school and to connect with the work, um, but it also gives them a sense of community. They're building they're building that shared experience with their professor, um, you know, which I think is huge. Uh, and the other thing. Um, Christine about the the research you're doing is just um, it's very interesting to me because <laughs> the whole time you were talking I was thinking you know we're we're banning all these books but we're not banning stuff we see on TV I mean there's a whole um, new show on Netflix about Jeffrey Dahmer like and it's scary right to me that is not worse they're reading um, of mice and men, <laughs> you know? So it, it's really interesting when you see it laid out, when you start to do the research, um, really where we're putting our, our efforts um, in terms of what we think our, our, our kids should and should not, um, should not see. So I just <laughs> wanted to point that out. Bonetta, I think you bring up a really good point um, in the sense that what they are seeing on Instagram and um, TikTok, um, I think I would be a little bit more concerned about that than some of the books that are being banned. Um, I, I, I was looking and I was like, what do you mean the house on Mango Street? I mean, you know, there's there's nothing in the world in that book that I think would be necessarily offensive unless we're talking about um, the experience of the experiences of someone who does not necessarily look like the dominant culture. Um, I think it's very important for all educators to make sure that um, that the graphics that they use, the books that they use, the materials that, you know, the PowerPoints that they use, that they're diverse so that their students will feel included as opposed to being excluded. Um, I think that it's very, very important that um, school libraries be as diverse as humanly possible. I know growing up, that's where I spent all of of my time and I learned so much and they and had so many questions answered. And I think if parents are concerned about what their child is reading, then this is a wonderful opportunity for them to sit down and have these conversations. So what did you read? Well, this is how we feel in this particular household. What, you know, this, these, this is our belief system. Um, and let's have a discussion about this particular book. Um, and I think Christine made an excellent point where a lot of these passages are just lifted out of the book and talked about, you know, out of context. 
And when I see people, you know, protesting a particular book, I always wonder, have they read it or have they just read an excerpt of it? Or are they jumping on a bandwagon because someone else said something about this particular book? And um, I think all literature is good literature if it allows us to have a conversation. Um, and uh, I, I think that's important. Of course, we want to make sure that things are age appropriate and, you know, those types of things. Uh, but I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's important for the people to read the book before they decide to challenge it. And I, you know what, I really don't even have problems with people challenging books. If everybody sits around, reads the book and has a discussion uh, about the book, and then they decide about what needs to happen to it. Um, I, I just think that everyone should, um, well, should, should read the book and have a say. Those were great comments. I enjoyed, I, I, I echo a lot of, you know, what Vanetta as well as Antoinette has been saying. And, and in terms of like the discourse and the conversations, I think for the first half of last year, this is what um, the dominant conversations were in terms of like our, our narrative in terms of like, you know, how to improve the, um, you know, protect students' rights and, you know, to, to educate the parents and the community members on the importance of books and districts and follow, following their policies in terms of having these books be read and gotten through their review before, you know, making a decision or whether or not to retain it. However, you know, what has happened um, that has changed the dynamic a little bit from, you know, those days in terms of like discussing um, these types of topics um, is that the politics now have um, taken over. And we've seen that in the graphic, you know, in terms of like, it's no longer parents per se, you know, being um, the, the sole objectors of books. Right now, um, what's happening now is there's legislation, there's content um, restrict restrictive legislation that have been introduced. And a lot of them are, you know, directing um, teaching and providing access to information on racial as well as sexual identities um, in schools. And so these these laws um, are, you know, basically attempted to curb teaching of diverse of concepts um, and also restrict information related to gender, sexuality, and racial diversity. Um, and as we've seen in Florida and Texas are the most um, prolific you know, states to introduce these types of laws. Um, and in terms of bills that are being um, restricting, you know, kind of teaching of, you know, critical race theory or how teachers can discuss it. I think there's been over 42 states that um, have introduced bills. Um, this is an education week. I think um, they've reported on this and over 17 have passed them as of this fall. So, um, you know, th that's actually influencing a lot of what you're seeing right now. And the second part of it is, you know, as, as Antoinette has said, is that there was a mass book bans are organized. Um, there's an organized opposition right now that's happening that um, produces large list of books um, with subject matter that are related to LGBTQ anti-racism or racial diversity themes. And the goal of these particular PACs are, are to remove them from curriculums and libraries. Um, so these campaigns um, um, offer, you know, use, um, you know, the public to pressure 
you know, these types of schools. Um, and a lot of times we see that they lead to censorship or even, you know, schools that remove the books, you know, as a preemptive form of censorship. And, you know, some, some teachers right now are, you know, being reported to have like a chilling effect to not want to choose these types of books and create a controversy in their schools, right? Um, so, you know, we've seen like this in terms of like really strict environments for this, this type of campaign, you know, happen to, you know, take place in Texas as well as Florida. But also we're registering, you know, you know, incidences in, you know, New Jersey, New York, you know, Pennsylvania, um, Virginia. So, so this, um, you know, is, you know, something for us to keep in mind right now that, you know, what happened, you know, started last year to this year, school year, it's now become a full-fledged, you know, social and political movement. So we've got local groups, we have state groups and national groups that are all organizing themselves, you know, to um, massively, you know, remove books. And again, as we've said before, these books, you know, feature, you know, um, LGBTQ characters or characters of color, and they cover perhaps race or racism in American history or LGBTQ or sexual education. And in the Penn Index, they mentioned um, there's been over 2,500 bans in um, last year's school year. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's becoming, you know, a national, you know, problem, you know, in terms of concern. And, you know, I, what bothers me about it so much beyond the fact that I think it's ridiculous um, is that most, like we were saying, most people haven't even read these books. And I'll be the first to say, I haven't read all of them, but I've read, I've read quite a few. And so personally, I don't like to engage with people who haven't, who are not, you know, um, well-versed on the topic. Or you just, you know, you picked up a soundbite if you were on, on Facebook or like it's when I was saying on Instagram and TikTok, like we need to have a real conversation about this um, before we start, you know, putting forth legislation and 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 um and acting enacting laws that 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 restrict what people can learn. And I also just think, wow, there's so much effort that's being put into this, if we put this same amount of effort into teaching <laughs> what they should know, man, where would we be as a, as a, um, as a country? And also we're just so afraid to get away from, or to recognize one, what's really taking place in this country, um, especially as it relates to people of color um and, and and black people in particular like we're really afraid of getting away from explaining what happened and it's interesting to me because we don't have that option right i was in school i didn't learn anything about my people until it was black history month and again you get the canned version of rosa parks and MLK and Malcolm X, right? And then when February is over, okay, we, we're moving on now, right? But the minute that folks are saying, no, you know what? I'm gonna write a book about my experience because I don't see myself, or I'm gonna write a children's book and, and, and um, because I didn't have this book when I was a kid, then it's like, hold, hold on. Why are you trying to change what's happening? You know, and, and it's just, um, 
it's really concerning. I'm a I'm a parent and we take our kids to the library, I would say two almost two days a week, um, two different libraries, the ones that are closest to our house. And the way that my um <laughs> both my kids like light up when they go there and just see all the options that they have. And I'm just like, I don't remember in school having this many options, being able to see so many brown and black faces and 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 other people of color on books. It is amazing to me. And I just, I'm so happy that my kids have access to this. But then I also think, and these are the ones that they're restricting. And like I was saying, we all lose out by not having this information because what kind of people are we creating if they're not allowed to understand about the folks who live around us or their experiences? How are we um, moving forward as a people if you can't understand what your neighbor um, is going through? And so it, it's, it's, it's very um, concerning to me um, from the standpoint of the organization that people are taking. I think that's a, it's a, um, it's a wasted, <laughs> it, it's a waste of resources um, because I, I, I think I don't, I don't really pay attention to what my kid was reading in, or uh, what books they had in, in the library at my kid's school. I would if someone said we couldn't have certain books there, but otherwise I assume they have a wide range of books and, and he, he, he or she will have access to them if, if they need them. Um, and what kind of impact that's gonna have on them as an adult. I, I remember as a kid in fifth grade, I read Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. And it was the first time that there were black people in a book and my teacher read it. And my mom um, can tell you that I was just like, that really sparked my, my passion for reading. And I was like, I gotta get the sequel and now I need money for the, the, the book fair that's coming up because I gotta get books now. And it's not that my parents didn't read to me books um, uh, that had uh, Black folks in them or stories like that, because they definitely did, but I never saw it in school. And, you know, you spend a good amount of time in school. So I didn't read it. Once we read that, I was like, wow. Like, and so now as an adult, seeing more and more books like that available to students, like, why would we, why would we restrict that? I would love to just chime in for one moment because I heard a recent uh, one of our other talks um, and a librarian talking about the, the issues of tolerance, right? That you can't tolerate a book on the shelf that nobody's asking you to read, right? It's just sitting on the shelf and how, and the level of um, tolerance that we want to advocate for, which is the books should be on the shelf. Whether you choose to read them or not will give you the, the freedom of choice to make those choices, but could you just tolerate it being on the shelf, right? And I feel like that's, the tolerance issue just keeps coming up for me. I was thinking that a lot of this comes from fear and it's, uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with, with, 
the evolution of the nation. Um, a lot of things change, have changed, you know, in the last decade or so. You know, we have gay marriage. We're seeing um, uh, same-sex couples depicted on television and in commercials in ways that never were um, depicted before. I can remember, you know, um, we didn't, when I was growing up, and I'm probably older than everybody here, but, um, you know, I never saw interracial couples or anything on television. And, and so now we have all of this, you know, um, social change. And a lot of us would think that that's good and things are moving forward. Um, and I think some people are afraid. Um, so what they want to do is say, now, this is what a traditional American family looks like. And it should look like this, and they should act like this, and it should be like this. And, and if you're not exactly like that, then your responsibility to be an American is to assimilate so that you approximate that to the best of your ability. However, a lot of us are saying, no, there are a lot of ways to be an American. You know, I can be an African-American there, are, you know, I can be um, this, I can be that, I can have um, this sexuality. My family can look like this and we can still be American. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. They say they want a particular kind of America. And when these books and these ideas are challenging their notion of what we are supposed to be. And um, I, I think that that's part of the conversation that needs to be had. You know, um, how are we going to redefine or re-envision um, what America looks like? Really beautiful comments, everybody. Um, I want to turn to our audience. We are a, a group of 15, so I'm happy to just have you unmute and pose a question or share an idea with um, our speakers and each other, if you would like to. Anyone have any experiences with banned books? Can I take this moment to layer in that while someone takes their um, their mute off that, um, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin was banned during Harriet's life extensively in the entire South, but it continues to be banned. And we just had a teacher from Texas uh, visiting the museum saying that he's not allowed to say Harriet Beecher Stowe's name or Uncle Tom's Cabin, like not even reference the book in the classroom. So it's not even not have the book, it's not reference the book in case somebody might want to go to the library and pick it out. When was the book first banned in, in Stowe's time? Yeah, as soon as it was published in 1852, it was banned throughout the South. So it was revered in the Northern States and it was banned almost entirely in the Southern States. But of course the Tom shows weren't banned. So people knew about the characters and yeah. 
In fact, the play version of Uncle Tom's Cabin became the longest running play in American history. Mm-hmm. And that's the beginning of blackface and minstrel theater and all of the sort of stereotypical representations that she was trying to undo in certain ways and in other ways codify. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. I've taught uh, Sherman Alexi. I don't know if, he, if he, his name came up tonight, today. He, his book is on our, on our periodic table. Yeah, I couldn't really see the titles. From yep. The, yeah. Yep. If you go, if you go to our website, you'll be able to see okay. um, the page we have on him, but yeah, we uh-huh. have, we have that. I just also wanted to mention that um, along with the periodic table, um, like I was saying in my talk, we do have a number of other um, programs that are complementary to um, to the the theme of um, um, book banning at our institution. So uh, I have a program called Movies That Matter, and uh, we show films that um, we think our our campus community should see and they they come in a wide variety of themes um, but they're book they're they're um, films that we think people need to see and and talk about and so um, this year where um, we showed like so the first film was Encanto and we show Encanto because of the representation um, of the um, Hispanic culture on on um, screen um, and also the themes that came out of the film. Um, and because we know that there are a number of children's books that are on um, the BAM book list as well. So um, we made that available to our um, to our campus. And um, on Monday, we're showing um, Fahrenheit 451, which couldn't be any closer to <laughs> um, the, the, the theme that we're talking about tonight. Um, but again, just making these films available to students. We're also going to show um, The Hate You Give, which is um, one of the top 10 um, books that's um, that's been for, uh, mainly for the police violence, but um, for a number of other reasons. Um, so we're going to show that. Um, and again, just giving students that access um, to more information about this topic, but also, you know, that there are um, there are films that are associated with the books, but there's also the theme. So like Fahrenheit 451, it's like was ahead of its time, right? And and um and it's still unfortunately re- relevant today. So um making sure that students have have access to that. Um and then having um a number of speakers come in. Um so we had um Keith Knight from um that show Woke on Hulu. Um, he came and he spoke around this topic, um, and we also um, have an artist in our gallery right now, um, Kamasi um, Barnett, who has a um, series called the um, the Morkin Tales, and he basically takes um, comic books and he redoes the covers to um, show and highlight social justice issues. 
Um, so that's currently running in our gallery because again, there's a number of comic books and graphic novels that have been challenged as well. So um, making sure that we are um, showcasing and talking about this topic in a bunch of different ways um, and giving the students as well as our, our, our surrounding um, community access to this, um, um, to this topic uh, in just a variety of, um, of different ways um, at different times throughout the year. So um, I think it's been really awesome to, to see our students interact with it and also realize that they didn't know necessarily about book banning. And then the question comes up as to why is this happening? So like it's when that was saying earlier, it does really open up a conversation um, that we can have with our students about what's really going on um, outside of our campus where we're trying to nurture that they learn new things and that they be exposed to this, whereas other parts of the country are trying to restrict it. So just wanted to throw that out there. I think that um, what that suggests to me is that potentially we should end on expanding rather than being diminished or reduced. Um, let's all just keep expanding. Um, we have an expression at the Stowe Center, which is words can change the world. And clearly people must realize that um, if they're trying to take the books off the shelf and out of the classroom, that these books create a level of empathy and caring and tolerance that is potentially dangerous. So words can change the world. Let's keep doing this important work of educating and teaching and being activists. Thank you so much to all of you. Thank you all, it was really interesting. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.